I'm here with uh, Alec, and Alec has done a, an excellent paper on communion, and he did it up here. Uh, he presented for us here at Forging Plowshares, though I was not able to be here. And so I wanted to, uh, to get his uh, picture of his study that he's done in 1 Corinthians. And Alec, get, just to begin with, give us a kind of, uh, what is the broad uh, summary conclusion that you've come to? Um, without going into the exegesis, and I'll start at the beginning and end at the end and ignore the stuff in the middle for now. Um, this was a project that was spawned out of a dissatisfaction I had in my experiences with the church. Not that the people were hateful or anything like that, but I severely um, lacked an ability to make friendships on my own. And I noticed inside of our groups that were teaching-wise, telling us we need to be open, we need to be loving, that there wasn't a lot of opportunity to actually get to know people while I'm around them. And so there seemed like there was a lot of falseness. Um, so in the, the typical church service didn't really provide an opportunity for what we would think of normally as fellowship or koinonia. Exactly, exactly. And what was replaced with that were um, things that didn't have to do with Christ. So like movies or fellowship. When you're watching Marvel or rated R stuff that has some inappropriate content. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't seem right to me. So I decided I was going to just research um, the whole early church gathering, then narrowed it down to just fellowship, then just two passages, and mainly one event, the Lord's Supper, which is actually a misnomer. There is no Lord's Supper, but we may get to that later, Uh Um, the Eucharist, the communion event. Now, why do you say that uh, there is... uh so by Lord's Supper, you're, you're wanting to say that our typical understanding of Eucharist or of communion, uh, that you're making a departure from that understanding. Yes, and not exactly at the same time. What it is, is Lord's Supper is used as a phrase for the cracker and the juice, or really the cracker and the cup. The contents of the cup is not commented on. Paul F. Bradshaw does good work of that in his um, book, Eucharistic Origins. But the cracker and the cup, they are not the supper. If we're going to make a distinction between the supper and those elements which I don't argue for or against with in my paper. But if we're going to make a distinction, the Lord's Supper is not the title for that. So whenever people say we're taking the Lord's Supper and they're taking the thanksgiving and blessing elements of it, it's a misnomer. The Supper is what happened in Corinthians, at least, in the midst of that entire event, which was opened by breaking of bread and thanksgiving, Uh participating in a meal, and closed with a cup, which would then typically lead um, into a, a teaching sort of dialogue, dialogue sort of session. Now, are you saying that? Uh, so you're saying that uh, the there is no Eucharistic type celebration as we have it today in the New Testament. Is that your conclusion, or are you not making that sweeping a conclusion? 
I specifically tried to avoid stating whether the event was only a Thanksgiving or whether it was bipartite or one's thing. And so by that I mean, was it, there's the cup and blessing and they're distinct elements that they're the only thing that matters? Or is whenever we use breaking a bread talking about the whole entire daggone thing? Or whenever we use the cup and the bread, we're talking about everything, including the supper in the middle. In history, there is a distinction between the two, the agape and the Eucharist. But in reality, the events are always unified, and they're always partaken of together. And in Jesus' case in the institution, that's what they have. They have a lamb in between. They eat the Passover. In Corinthians, that's what they're doing. In Acts, they're breaking bread. And then later, it's explained that breaking bread is taking their meals with joy with one another. My emphasis is just saying, whether you take one stance or the other, they always went together. There is a unity to this event, and it contributed to fellowship, and that would be beneficial for the churches today. So now, the passage that you focused on is... Uh, the first Corinthians passage, right? Yes, I focused on two primarily. Acts 2, 42 through 47. Um, sorry, through 47. Yes, I got the verse right. And first Corinthians, um, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. Well, let's do a little bit. Tell us what, what the background is. What's happening in Corinth that's prompting Paul to write there? Um... Without going into detail about the Jew or the uh, Jewish and Greek dining cultures, um, I'll just focus right now on what was precipitating a really negative and crappy action by um, the Corinthian Christians. First of all, they were stratified socially. What that means is you have the rich and you have the poor. At least that's how it's commonly thought of. And this is seen throughout Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, Paul notes about this. Not many of you were born of noble birth, is one translation of a verse inside of there. I forget the particular verse. Um, we could go back and look at it if you wish. Um, Theson writes very persuasively from there, saying this is socioeconomic language, there are the rich, there are the poor. Um, that shouldn't be controversial in Corinthians. After that, though, this um, this is the key point. There was a famine taking place um, in Corinth at this time. Bruce Winter has done amazing work of showing that this was the case. His book, After Paul Left Corinth, is just an absolutely incredible read on a few different case studies throughout the book. And what he argues is that there is a famine that's taking place, which we can see referenced through things like Agabus inside of the book of Acts. You know, he prophesies saying, hey, there's going to be a famine. And these things often swept through the entire Middle East. They'd start off in one portion and sort of go up through the rest. So Paul leaves. The Corinthians have a famine. There are the richer brethren with slaves who are providing for their households and eating their meals. And then there are those who are slave workers, well, not really slave workers, but workers out inside of the fields who don't have work because there's no fields. 
Well, there's no fields, and they also have no money, so they're even worse off than the slaves who live inside the houses, because they have nothing. Which is what Paul uses, the language inside of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22. What, don't you have houses for eating and drinking, he says to the rich. They're the haves. Have houses, food, and drink. Or do you despise the gathering of God and shame those who do not have? What do they do not have? Well, in the context, houses, eating, drinking. That's scary. And why do we think that he says right afterward, should I praise you? I won't praise you. I'm not going to praise you in this. And later says that we have to examine ourselves and be judged. And even that the Lord is chastening people with infirmities and that many people are sleeping, dying as a result of this. There's something very serious taking place and it results with the ethics at the Lord's table. How are they treating one another as the church? How are they treating, and I'll make this point maybe later, the body of Christ? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, uh, you're saying that there may be landholders and those who are slave owners and then there are those who are completely dispossessed. And uh, the rich or those who have houses and food uh, are in some way, as Paul says, despising. Uh, and so you th- you're saying that one group may be uh, the noble or slave owners and the other group may be slaves. Um. Well, not necessarily slaves, because slaves would have been under the auspices of their owners, Mm -hmm. Um, but particularly the workers in the field, like the guy that Jesus uses in the the parable of the vineyard workers, Mm -hmm. where they go out into the field, and I'll pay you a denarius for this work. Well, comes back at the next hour, denarius for your work, and then what are they doing? They're literally just standing around, waiting to go and work in the fields. If they don't work, they have no pay. And these guys had no fields, so they had no work, so they had no pay. So there, that, uh, and we're still talking about the Lord's Supper. And your idea is that uh, that the Lord's Supper then was a means of providing for those who were without. That that is one of the effects, and that is certainly something that Jesus talks about again. There's a giving language inside of verses twenty three through twenty six. That is incredibly overt. In fact, Paul emphasizes this inside of this. I, I highlight it inside of my paper, looking at the, the Greek roots of some of those words. But Jesus, um, when he was... Okay, Paul says, first of all, what I received from the Lord, I handed over to you using giving language. There are similar roots in the Greek. That he, Jesus, was handed over in the night they did this, that he took bread and gave thanks, saying, this is my body, do this in remembrance, same way also the cup, saying, this is the cup, you know, do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, the giving language is very strong in the first part. This is meant to be a sharing, a communal event, and what was being done was the exact opposite of that. So, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the language involved. Uh, so you mentioned the idea of that they're not um, in some way uh, properly observing or taking note of the body of Christ. Uh, I think you had said that. What, what, what is your idea of the meaning there? 
the body of Christ and how it's used in a lot of the literature that I read in my paper, um, people say, well, it refers to the bread, and it refers to the cup. Um, and I think there's a word for that, and it's called wrong. Um, the body refers to the people. The context, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I split it into three sections and claimed inside of my paper that it was a chiastic structure. Chiasm, for anyone listening to this who doesn't already know what that is, it's like you're coming full circle in an argument. You start at one point, and you go down to the bottom of the circle, and there's the middle of it. And after that, it's like you're retracing your steps, going back up to your first point. So Paul gives instruction in the beginning, and he says, I'm going to come to you and arrange more instruction in the end. He talks about the way that they're treating one another inside of this gathering. And then he says, well, there's a judgment going on here, and you guys um, need to eat bread and drink the cup of the Lord in a worthy manner that you need to examine yourselves to see if you're treating the body correctly. Those two are parallel. How you're treating the body is how you're treating the body of Christ while you're participating in an event where we have a remembrance of Christ's body. But the key to that is body is the church. So, uh, in the traditional understanding, uh, when we talk about the, the body, we're talking about those elements. And so what do you think gets left out? Because, I mean, obvious thing here that there, there's not the focus on the church as the body of Christ, mm -hmm. but what else then might get left out by a focus simply on the elements? Uh, the resurrection. Oh, okay. Yeah, run that down for us. Oh, boy. That's a big one. <laughs> um, let me think of how to phrase it, because I could word vomit easily. When I was doing my research, I came across a guy by the name of Hans Konzelman. And he's one of these German dudes who reads too much, and frankly, it's the wrong stuff. Came up with the idea that the Lord's Supper was a memorial event specifically for Jesus' death. And when I read that, though I had always, inside of my theology up to that point, practiced what he had basically been saying, that all we're doing is remembering Jesus on the cross, I felt really uneasy when he said that this is a Greek memorial event. Like, that's really perverted. Hmm. Where's, where's the hope if we're just talking about Jesus dying? I mean, I'm remembering the cross, as in I'm picking it up. That's my encouragement. We're doing this. So he, he but, was saying that it's a, uh, a memorial event on the order of other memorial events. That yes. Heard. Yes. And C.K. Barrett makes a comment on it saying, well, no it's not, because this guy didn't stay dead. Mm -hmm. The difference is um, when you focus only on the elements and neglect the church that's partaking in them, you neglect the evidence of Christ's resurrection enfleshed in the present that the body of Christ is present, that it is the church, therefore there has to be a resurrection. There's a spirit that's indwelling these people by the power of the resurrection. Uh -huh. 
So when it talks about the body of Christ, it's talking about the resurrected body of Christ in some way as being represented by the, the people there. That is a wonderful articulation of that. And so what, what is the role of the food? The role of the food? The elements in themselves as they're connected with the institution narrative inside of the synoptics let me say that simply. The cup and bread, like they're talked about when you know Jesus was taking them with his disciples uh-huh. inside of that room before he went out and died, uh-huh. um, they remind us of you know what his sacrifice was. In the culture, they were a thanksgiving. Um, and so it orients your mind towards remembering an event, and then when you engulf it, towards participating in that inside of your life. Oh, man, so this was his body that he nailed to a cross, therefore I'm partaking of this, therefore I need to be nailed to it as well. Well, more we need to be nailed to it as well. We're thanking God for this, so there's that. But then the fact that we are... Can you say your question one more time? I the, the, uh, the idea of uh, the food, the elements, the bread and the wine. What is What role for them? Oh, yeah, the symbolic, the teaching, the remembrance, the thanksgiving, and in addition to that, the food altogether, because some places, um, all they have is bread and maybe water inside of a cup. So Mm -hmm. those elements could have been the entire meal. Mm -hmm. Where you have that, it's fellowship with one another. You have the meal. And so the participation in the body of Christ is not a participation in the dead body no it's in the living body the resurrected enfleshed in the church by the spirit in the present so you're saying that we've kind of missed the point uh in that we in a sense are memorializing the dead jesus when in fact we have to what's taking place is participation in the resurrected church which is in some way the ongoing resurrected body of Christ. Yes, that wasn't a point inside of my paper when I wrote it, but after a few years of reflection, I began to come to that conclusion. So, in the, in your paper, you I noticed you... Uh, I, I, uh, the word koinonia, is that... Uh, mm-hmm. And so you, you broke down a lot of this language. Uh, is there... It, it, does that point us then in part to what you're describing? Why koinonia? Why is that important? Koinonia in its usage in 1 Corinthians? Uh Koinonia is the same word that's translated fellowship elsewhere. In many sermons that I've heard, they say koinonia, meaning we get together. Well, it's a sharing word. You have koinonia inside of your missionary funds. You have koinonia inside of your... um, participation in teaching events inside of your gospel missionary work and inside of your meals. Mm -hmm. And so it seems strange to me that people are using this word that seems to be really interactive with other people in a way that they say, well, you're only doing it with the bread and juice and somehow Jesus is enfleshed only in the bread and juice. Like, that just seemed weird. So I looked in 1 Corinthians and when I found... The word is used only three times, once in 1 Corinthians 1, nine, 
where it's talking about the church. Um, and I want to read that too, because I feel that it's important for when we read 1 Corinthians 10 and the other two places that the word is used. Now you're saying it's used three times in Corinthians. Yes, only three times. Okay. Once in one nine, where it talks about the fellowship that we have and we were called into in Christ Jesus. And then two more times in direct succession in chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. Um, Flee from idolatry, I speak, sorry, 16 and 17. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? That word sharing is koinonia. Is not the bread which we break also a sharing, koinonia, fellowship, in the body of Christ? Then he directly talks about the church in verse 17. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So, the emphasis there, it it seems that it's on the church. It seems that it's on us participating in whatever this bread is, in the event there, mm-hmm. um, and participating it together in Jesus. There's a communal aspect that we often miss. So the idea is not literally uh, the idea of, uh, you know, maybe one, but the idea of the, what the, is the oneness there pointing to uh, the united fellowship, uh, or is the oneness there pointed to uh, the actual physical bread? I don't want to make too sharp of a distinction. Mm-hmm. Because when you're participating in the bread with one another, mm-hmm. they're happening in the same context. So the event, the elements, and the people are all kind of there. Now, however, if we're going to make these hardline distinctions and, and then talk about the bread as though it's somehow intrinsically important apart from the church and participating in that context then we're doing something that Paul can't ever talk about because that's not how it was done. Mm-hmm. So, wherever it is, it's a church event. The communal is there. Um, and the focus is not on only the bread and only me as an individual. Now, is there is there significance in the two elements, the bread and the cup, that there's two, or is that, uh, have we overemphasized the separation of the two? What do you mean the separation of the two? Well, the, the, way, the way that we tend to talk about, uh, you know, Jesus uh, refers to the blood and we think of shed blood. And I, I guess that uh, I'm not sure that it's the shed blood uh, as much as uh, the idea of blood may be just life that mm. in, a, in a biblical understanding, uh, oh, yeah. blood refers to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not dead life, it's yeah. not the, the death, simply, nor uh, is it the dead body, but it's the living body. And so I guess that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking, that if you, if you draw the two things together, rather than separating them out, uh, yes, Christ died, and that's part of it, but it's also a pointer to the resurrection. I was wondering if you had 
dealt with that? Um, I hadn't articulated that, but I agree with it. I mean, Genesis um, chapter 9 and then Leviticus as well, the life is in the blood, and that that would make sense. Uh-huh. Um, so I would agree with that. The resurrection idea, I'll admit, is is actually fairly new. Um, it's happened within the past several months that I've I've started to articulate mm-hmm. that. So uh, in the in the paper, you do both Corinthians and Acts. Uh, it does the Acts passage bring uh, some uh, new information into this that we don't get in the Corinthian passage? Well, I mainly did the Acts passage to be thorough. And the most important thing I found inside of it was Acts 2.42. And the verse is often translated that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, chi, the Greek word chi, meaning and, to fellowship. Then there's no and. Comma is how it's usually translated. To the breaking of the bread, chi, and to prayer. It's a weird construction. It's in the dative. I looked it up inside of Wallace's and Ben Witherington, a few other commentators, and they make a case saying this is a dative in simple apposition. Well, to actually make that sound simple, um, it means... They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and the fellowship was the breaking of the bread and the prayer. So fellowship refers to the breaking of the bread and the prayers as part of this. It was just to solidify my case, saying whatever this event was that we often call the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, it's fellowship. Whatever it is, it's that. And that's the emphasis when the early church is taking this and how they understood this as a primary focus. And so however we understand this event, fellowship absolutely must take the center stage, um, at least if we're taking it from Acts and um, from Luke. And I know I'm not commenting on all of Luke's comments on this as well while I say that. Now, I think you did a bit of work with uh, that there was a, a famine uh, at this time, and this may have aggravated the situation. Yes. Um, actually, I think it it caused the situation, is my thought. The stratified church... Um, where do I start? Let me actually go back. I'll explain a little bit of the culture. When there was a famine, it was serious business. There would often be um, people who were appointed in certain positions, character, uh, curator of the, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but Anoe, or curator of the grain supply. And what they would do is it would be a Roman um, government-officiated thing, basically to stop people from rioting and killing all the other Romans, because they didn't have any food. There was one that was put in place around the mid-50s. I think his name was Dippinus, if I remember Bruce Winter's um, article correctly. And 
this was um, around the time that Paul was writing to the Corinthians. So they have a really bad famine. What they were often doing inside of their events is they would have like a potluck dinner sort of thing. Um, Take your own food to this event and we'll share it with one another is the intention or the idea or supposed to be. Well, there are some brothers who they don't have any food, so they don't come to the meal with food. And then there are others who do. And they're eating in front of the guys who don't, and they're not sharing it. Like, that's just rude table manners in general. Um, But then to say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the representation of the church. This is the thing we do which proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. Death and resurrection there, by the way. Um, We're just going to ignore you, church. that, That was the context starving and then people getting fat and drunk um and that's sort of the do you want me to go into more detail about the proving um how the famine worked yeah yeah tell us about it oh boy if you want a more detailed argument see bruce winter's book after paul left corinth okay that's that's what I'll say, and I'll have to look up the specific article. I have it inside of a PDF, um, where he he goes through. It's a pretty thorough argument, basically stating, starting with Agabus um, and with measures of the Nile, um, that when they went up to a certain amount, famine always incurred. Um, that there was a curator of the grain supply that was put into position during A.D. 53 or 54, that there was a certain Gaius, I think was his name, um, no, Gallio, who took office in Corinth for a bit and then left um, around, I think it was either 53 or 54, um, when some Roman games were going on. And all of it points to... Um, Bruce Winter lays out the details of why this is so. I can't recall them off the top of my head because it was, it was a pretty um, detailed paper uh-huh. that I read two and a half years ago. Um, but he uses that to point to the um, conclusion that there was a famine in Corinth. I'll have to look up the article, and we might be able to attach it. Um, okay, all right. So the the picture is that uh, they're abusing uh, the they're, they're, what they're doing is not fellowship. Oh yeah. And what they're and so fellowship would be uh, a sharing in the body of Christ. I guess the the what you're describing then is a delimitation of a koinonia as it would uh, be accommodated in a private home. That there is no such thing as a hierarchical structure in which they're meeting and they're, they're apparently, if they're meeting around supper tables, uh, there is a, a kind of limit to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, the social boundaries are meant to be destroyed inside of this event. 
the rich and the poor would typically, um, man, I wish I knew his name. I'll have to look up this name, the name of this author. Um, did a wonderful study on the architecture of ancient Corinthian houses related to how many people they could fit inside of a typical home and the different rooms that they would have. They had typically um, an atrium, a triclinium, and a, a sort of courtyard area. Um, they would often eat inside of one specific room. The men would. And then women, children, slaves would eat inside of a separate room. Well, at this event, the fact that you have um, verse 17 in Corinthians precluded, preceded by verses 1 through 16, where it talks about there being women prophets and men inside of the same room, the gender boundaries being broken. We know that one for sure. Uh -huh. And then you also have haves and have-nots inside of there. Uh, whether you make the argument that it's slaves or people who don't have anything, they're in the same room. Uh -huh. They're not partaking of this in different areas. Some people make that argument, but it's kind of weak in my opinion. Um, you can see Ben Witherington if you want a presentation of it. Um, but they are... The, the social boundaries um, are being crossed inside of this congregation in a very uh, real way that was very powerful, especially within that culture. The, and, and the idea is that uh, that significance would only come about if what we're describing is a shared meal in a private home uh, that is mm. uh, uh, constitutive of the church. Yes. Uh, so is the implications for what you're saying, uh, well, what are the implications in regard to the way we do church now? In, in my paper... I wanted to be as unifying, and I still want to be as unifying on this issue as I can. Um, there are many churches today that practice um, their communion, I'll call it. Um, which communion, by the way, background on that, it comes from the word koinonia. It's a different translation. I think the English Standard Version has it inside of 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Um, where we read shared in the Nazbian earlier. You know, they share in the bread, they share in the, the cup of blessing. Um, but the communion, or really it's the thanksgiving, or in some cases experienced as the pray about how bad you are and ask for forgiveness, um, inside of our churches is done in a way that is very individualistic and private um and i don't want to you know step on their toes and say you guys are this event has no meaning whatsoever and god doesn't like that you're trying to participate in it so what i tried to do is make it simple hey meet inside of each other's houses in a small group do the same elements and also have a meal because you're in a small group that would be cool and and that was my conclusion for that. I mean, that was, uh -huh. there's a lot more that's communicated when you participate in this event in that way. And when you 
have the event horizon, uh, I think that's the way of saying it, when you have your own um, mentality of experiencing the event change, the way that you read the passage changes, and then that can instigate a deeper and richer theology of the Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. Um, So my conclusion was that. Guys, just meet in each other's houses and eat this thing. Participate in it together. Um, You don't have to change your Sunday ritual, but maybe add something on to this as a step. And what you're actually saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that the, the, the true koinonia is, by definition, not what's happening in the Sunday ritual, but what you're saying it is could happen in a small group. Oh, yeah, the Sunday ritual isn't koinonia. I mean, that, that much is just, you're ignoring the people around you. I mean, you're kind of doing this event together, so there's a little bit of it, but you're not really participating with each other. It's all about the individual experience. I mean, it's still a thanksgiving. It's still a remembrance. Inside of your churches, you often participate inside of a giving as well. It's not like it's, you know, this, oh gosh, you're doing it all wrong sort of thing. It's just, there's one key element that needs to be included. Fellowship. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Alec. Is there, have we left anything out? Anything you want to add to, to what you've done in the in your research? Um, I want to do more research on this subject, specifically from coming from sacrifice. The early church understood this event as a sacrifice. I did not flesh that out, eh, flesh it out, sacrifice, mm-hmm. pun, inside of my paper. I mm-hmm. didn't do that. And I want to, because it's very important for an understanding of this. So that's where I'm going to take this in the future. Yeah, and I think we've talked about that here in our fellowship, that, mm-hmm. um, that we may, in other words, part of the change-up that you're talking about is inclusive then of a reworked understanding that we've kind of misunderstood what the sacrifices were. Yes. And then we've misunderstood what the communion was. And so if we, we kind of just need to rework the whole thing. And uh, I, that I mentioned in our first John that, that, you know, the two goats, uh, that, well, in fact, it's the not the goat that is sacrificed, uh, but it's the goat that's sent away into the wilderness and not sacrificed that is the bearer of sins. The goat that is sacrificed seems to be representative, then not you know it, of death per se, but of life devoted to God, and that's the you know the Paul's picture in. Romans that we should be a living sacrifice, and uh, once you once you get the Old Testament straight on this, um, that then that you know points to uh, a reworked understanding. Or you could do it the other way. Once you get the communion right, uh, what Christ sacrifice means. So that there really is, I think that that, that what you're doing is quite significant in that. It's not just the Lord's Supper we're talking about, 
But really what we're talking about is a whole is a reworked understanding of salvation. That is, if we're saved in and through the body of Christ, the koinonia, the fellowship, uh, that uh, this is a present tense participation in the body of Christ. And I'm afraid we're missing that, and that's that was why I thought your work was significant. And that is that's something that I noticed actually inside of uh, the translations of both of my passages. I forgot to mention this earlier. Um, there's a phrase. In Greek, it's into auto. It's a really technical phrase. And very, very difficult to translate. Most translators leave it untranslated. They just don't include it in the text. Open up your KJV version, though, to Acts 2, um, verse 47. Or, and I think it says this inside of the King James Version of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21. But there's this phrase... Into auto. Um, Everett Ferguson makes an argument that it's a technical word for into the assembly. And it sounds like a really small sort of thing, but when you read Acts 2.47, that they're praising God, having favor with all the people, the Lord adding to their number day by day those who are being saved into the assembly, that's important. Where are you being saved? Well, we're being saved into heaven. Uh... Well, what's, what's Luke actually saying? You're being saved, oh, into this group of people. You're being saved out of what Peter said in previous verses in Acts, a perverse generation. It's very present tense. That in 1 Corinthians 11.20, when you've come together, talking about what? Oh, yeah, when you've come together into the assembly. Into auto. It's a very present, very communal event, and it's very related with our salvation. And maybe part, you know, part of all this is that what we think of as the kingdom of God, that the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, the, the church, that once we get straight, uh, that it's a present tense entry into that that's being described. Mm-hmm. And so that, that uh, you can equate entry into the fellowship with salvation. I would Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how you're saved apart from the body of Christ. There may be some allowance made or there may be, you know, a wideness in God's mercy. Not, Not to talk about, you know, those sorts of things. But what we do know is that the way in which it's described that salvation is is provided to us that we participate in is in this fellowship what salvation means then is this practical participation in the body of christ salvation's not uh, so much about a future tense missing hell and going to heaven but it's uh it's doing life together is salvation now that may be extended into the eschatological kingdom that in the future, but that kingdom is one that we can equate, uh, you know, with uh, it, it's the, the church, that it's, uh, it is not completely, you know, uh, a finished kingdom. Uh, and so this, this goes into, you know, a, a reworked understanding of what we, what we think, 
you know, Jesus talks about, I go and prepare a place for you. So we often get the idea that he's doing heavenly carpentry work somewhere. But actually he goes before us, and he's talking about throughout John where he says that. He's talking about uh, the idea of the household of God, the fellowship. Yeah, and just to make it clear so that if I tell my mom to listen to this, um, hi mom, that she, uh, she can understand what verses and look them up, um, he's talking about John 14, the passage that in many places, um, and people translate it, I will give you a house, and in my father's house there are many rooms, or in my father's mansion there are many rooms, and people think, oh, we go to heaven, we get our mansion. Um, however, what's often not noticed is the other place where father's house is used in the Gospel of John, and it's in John chapter 2, where Jesus is really obviously, and when we read this, we understand this immediately, referring to Father's house as the temple. And then John's interpreting that to be Jesus's body. Destroy this temple, Jesus says in John 2, and I will raise it up in three days. Well, of course he's talking about that, but if the temple's back, if the Father's prepared a house, a temple, with many rooms, referring to bridal language, then it's talking about the Spirit like what, being breathed into the people of God, like what Jesus does inside of John chapter 20, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a unification of the church and of God in Jesus Christ by the Spirit, that we participate in that event together. So, yeah, I think, I think that what you've done is sort of a foot in the door of... Uh, uh, you know, uh, it opens up a completely uh, what what James McClendon and others have called a practical salvation, a practical. Mm-hmm. And by practical, don't you know, not not uh, the way that it's misconstrued, but the the idea that no, this is this is talking about our everyday life, uh, and it's not a magical sacramental way of that we often. Whether Protestant or Catholic, I think that we've we've separated the body, you know, as the flesh and blood of Jesus, from the body, uh, which is the the people and the the practical outworking of their lives. And so I think that's what you're what you're bringing together. Yeah, um, could I put it in a way that I would like to tell my mom? Oh, yes. <laughs> I love my mom. I love bringing her up in conversations. Um, it's sort of like we need to focus on the earth and bringing the clouds to the earth rather than keeping our head in the clouds. Jesus came down from heaven to earth and he acted as that bridge. The Lord says in the Lord's Prayer, Your will be done, your kingdom come where? Well, on earth, as it is in heaven. Well, he he came down from there. And so we're bringing the kingdom of God from heaven on earth. That in Revelation, the new Jerusalem, inside of Revelation um, chapter 20, comes down to earth, from heaven to earth. We're kingdom bringers in this world. 
and God's the one bridging that gap. So if we want to have a heavenly focus, we absolutely must have an earthly focus. I hope that makes sense and I don't sound like a heretic. Some people I might. I think it sounds perfectly sensible. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ayala. Thank you very much. And this has been interesting. I look forward to your paper on sacrifice.